The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning, Shades. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Psalm 119, verses 41 through 48. Okay, Psalm 119, 41 through 48. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the gift of your word. And I pray that through it this morning, we would see more of the gift that it is, more of the firm foundation you have given us in it. But more than anything, I pray that we would see more of you through it. We pray these things in the name of the word made flesh, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. If you haven't had a chance, I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. You can be right there in verse 41 is where we'll start in just a second. Um, I don't, for those of you who are parents, especially of small children, I don't know if this is a common situation in your house, but in my house, it is not uncommon for my two little boys uh, to come to me and ask permission to watch TV or to play a video game, something of that nature. And to bolster their case, they will say, mom said it was okay. Which begs the question as to why they even need to ask me in the first place. But they claim to have a word from mom. But how do I know indeed that these are Holly's words? Is there a way that I can figure out that what they are saying, whether or not what they are saying is reliable? I, I think there's a way to do that. I mean, this isn't like when someone tells you what their Wordle score is and there's absolutely no way to check and see if it's accurate or not. You just have to believe them on faith. I'm not speaking from experience or any kind of game that I'm involved in with about 20 other people in this church. But I trust all of you. No, but what I'm talking about is with my little boys, there actually is a way, I think, to see if what they are saying is reliable. I, I can try to get as close to the source as I can. Perhaps I can call in the witness of their older siblings. And did you hear what mom said? Did she indeed say that it was okay? Or maybe I can compare the little boys' stories of what mom said, see if there are inconsistencies. Or I can get all the way back to the source herself, which is normally what I do, and I simply ask Holly. But the point is that there is a way to see the reliability or unreliability of my little boy's claim. The Bible makes a claim, just like my little boy's, and it's a claim concerning words. It claims that its words are God's word. Last week we saw that claim. 
several times in Psalm 119 as we began our series for the season of Lent, series entitled Not by Bread Alone, and in this little miniature series that's a break from our series through the book of Judges, in this, in this little miniature series, we, what we're trying to do is see what we believe about this book, why we believe it, so that we might live by it. And one of the first things we see at the heart of what we believe about this book is that it claims over and over again throughout its pages to be the very word of God. Probably, most famously, it makes that claim in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, which says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Yes, it was written by human authors. We do not believe that this book dropped from heaven like the Book of Mormon. We don't believe that people went into like a robotic state as it was dictated to them like the Quran. No, we believe it was written by human authors, bears their messy fingerprints all over it. But even still, 2 Peter 1.21 says that none of God's word was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This book claims to be God's word, but is that claim reliable? Like, can we, can we trust it? Before we see anything else about this book, we gotta ask that question. Can, can we trust its claim to be God's word? The psalmist did. That's what you see right there, Psalm 119. Look at verse 41 with me. The psalmist writes, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me for." I trust your word. So when the psalmist finds himself in a place where he's being taunted by enemies, enemies who want to see his faith fail, guess what he clings to? The, the word's reliability. He trusts that God's word is what it claims to be, therefore it can be trusted. Look, look at verse 43. He says, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth. For my hope, my hope is in your rules. He hopes in God's word. That's how reliable he believes it to be. He hopes in it. And not just privately, he does so publicly. Look at verse 46. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings, and I shall not be put to shame. For I find my delight in your commandments, which I Love. This is how much the psalmist believes in the reliability of God's word. Like he stands on it firmly, even when confronted by kings. Like he trusts in God's word, believes he will not be put to shame for doing so. And he trusts in it publicly. He also trusts in it personally. Look at verse 48. I, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your Statutes. In other words, the psalmist worships in response to the word. He loves it, meditates on it, molds it over in his mind and in his heart because he trusts it personally. He believes it is reliable. Do we? Shades, I don't know about you, but with everything that I feel like I face in this world and in my personal world, with everything going on in my personal world right now, I need a reliable word to trust in. Some foundation upon which I can stand. I need a solid rock like we sing about because there are times when all around my soul is giving way. And I need, I need a solid rock that can be my hope and stay. Is, is that this word? Do we believe it's reliable? It claims to be God's word. Is there a way to see the reliability of that claim? I believe 
that the answer is a twofold yes. And I believe that it's twofold because when it comes to Scripture's claim to be God's word, there's really two questions that we have to answer. Question number one, how do we know we have the right words? I'll explain that a little bit more in just a second, but how do we know we have the right words? And question two is how do we know they are really God's? So what we're going to do for the rest of our time is we're just going to tackle those questions in order, and we're going to explore three answers to each. So question number one, how do we know we have the right words? In other words, like my little boys telling me what their mom said, I I don't hear it directly from their mouth. I get it as it's passed down. The words we have on the pages of our Bible are similar. They've been passed down to us from the original source. When it comes to the books of the Bible, we don't have any of the original documents. We don't have Matthew's gospel that Matthew sat and wrote and like signed his name at the end. What we have are copies, copies that have been made and passed down over the years. Our God, like I said earlier, Bible didn't drop out of heaven wasn't just dictated, dictated and people went into like a robotic trance as they wrote it. No, our God has worked always as a God of means through very messy things like human beings. We have in front of us a book that he has given to us in the exact same way. So how do we know that we even have the original author's words that were written? How do we know they didn't get changed somewhere along the way? I mean, if my little boys can twist what their mama said in one step, And how easily could this word get changed into hundreds, thousands of steps as it's been passed down to us over thousands of years? The Bible may claim to be God's words, but how do we know that we reliably have the right words? The ones written by the authors. There are a lot of different ways you can answer that question. We're just going to come at it through three things. Three pieces of evidence that I believe point to the absolute reliability that the words in your Bible are the right words the ones the authors wrote. Evidence, number one, the process. The process. Have um, have any of you ever played the game telephone? Do they still do this? Do kids still do this? Probably, I heard the other day that like when you ask kids to make us like, like show you what a phone looks like that they don't do this anymore, they do this. I don't know if that's true. It's just what I've been told anyway. Uh, The game telephone, if you're unfamiliar, you you have a group of people and you get in a line and the very first person is given a secret sentence and they pass it to the next person and so forth and so on. And when you get to the end, the last person tells everybody what the sentence is and it's hilarious, everybody laughs because it's nowhere close. It's nowhere close to what you started with. And why is it nowhere close? Because this is a terrible process. It's a terrible way to try and pass a, a message down. But in the ancient world, It was a very professional process, particularly used in transmitting the Old Testament. The Old Testament was primarily transmitted by professional scribes, and they had a very meticulous process to ensure the accuracy of the documents that they copied. Most of the time, you'd have multiple scribes working together on multiple copies at a time. They would compare them line by line, and any time they found a mistake, they they didn't correct it. They started over. No whiteout. They took that corrupted document and made sure it got destroyed and started again. 
This very meticulous professional process. Now, that applies mostly to the Old Testament. The New Testament did not necessarily have such a professional process in place, but those doing the copying came out of that culture. Like, their ability to pass down word, orally or written, was unlike anything that we are currently capable of. I, I can't even remember phone numbers anymore because we're so technologically dependent. I don't remember much information anymore. I gotta look it up. Give me a second. I'll get on Wikipedia or IMDb or something like that and I'll tell you what's going on. They lived in a culture where orality, memorization, was insane off the charts. So they could have insane accuracy when it came to passing down word. We have evidence of their insane accuracy. Why? Because we have documents from very early and from very late. In other words, we have them from the beginning of the telephone line and the end of the telephone line. And guess what? They are not like our telephone game. Their accuracy is crazy. Not perfect, but crazy close. The process of passing down the word was very reliable. I said it wasn't perfect, and so that probably leaves some of you, and leaves me still asking, okay, even if it was crazy close, if it's not perfect, then how do I know I still have the right words in front of me and not just a Bible that's full of a bunch of mistakes? It's where we need to see evidence number two. Evidence number two, the dates. The dates. Uh, when it comes to ancient documents, the closer in date that the copy is to the original the more likely it is to be accurate. Why? Because it's further up the telephone line. There's been less time for a mistake to be made. So let's, let's make this an easier conversation. This is a very complex, very long conversation, and none of us want to be here for three hours. So we're just going to talk about the New Testament. We'll do a Shades Midweek podcast about the old later. Let's just talk about the New Testament. The oldest New Testament document we have is a piece. It's not even whole. It's a piece of papyrus. And it contains part of John chapter 18. This piece of papyrus comes from roughly the year 130 AD. The Gospel of John was likely written in 90 AD. So this is 40 years after the Gospel of John was originally written. That is insanely close to the original penning. May not sound like it to you, but hang on. You may be like, Jonathan, that's just a piece, okay? The oldest complete New Testament, all the books bound together in a singular copy. The oldest complete New Testament we have is Codex Sinaiticus. You can go see it yourself. It's in the British Library. I've seen it, stared at it with my own eyes. It comes from roughly 350 AD. So we're talking 300 to 400 years after the original documents, we have a complete New Testament. Shades, that's insane. You don't, you don't see how insane that is until you compare it with other ancient literature written around the same time period. Other ancient literature like Caesar's Gallic Wars. Okay, Caesar's Gallic Wars... This is one of our primary sources for information about the life of Caesar, for information about the Roman Empire during his life. 
In other words, when you read your history books or go through school and are being taught about Rome, a lot of that information that comes at you as brute fact is coming from primary sources like Caesar's Gallic Wars. The oldest copies we have of Caesar's Gallic Wars come from 900 years after the originals were penned. We use that to teach Roman history. We also use Tacitus' histories. Tacitus' histories were written in about 100 AD. Oldest copies we have are from 800 AD, 700 years later. That's just twice, twice the comparison to our oldest copy of the complete New Testament. Or how about the history of Thucydides? Any, any fans of the movie 300? Anybody know about the Persian and Greek wars? King Leonidas, his famous 300 Spartans, no one. Bueller, Bueller. I've stood on the ground at Thermopylae. Um, all of that information comes from the history of Thucydides. Uh, that was written at about 400 BC. Our earliest copies from 980, 1,300 years later. And here's the deal. No scholar would believe that we don't have accurate copies of Thucydides. They'd laugh at you if you tried to say that because of that time gap. So, so how much more, how much more should we trust the reliability of Scripture? We, we have documents that are so much more reliable because they are so much older. Not only that, we know they're more reliable because we have more of them. This is evidence number three. Evidence number three, the numbers. So the process, the dates, the numbers. The more copies you have of a document, the easier it is to tell what the original said. That should make perfectly logical sense because, because the more documents I have, the more comparing I can do to determine what's, what's the true wording, what are the outliers. Th think of it like witnesses to a crime. Like if I only have two witnesses to a crime and their stories are different, determining who's telling me the truth is going to be very difficult. I got, I got a 50-50 shot right here. But if I have 100 witnesses to a crime, now, having 100 witnesses, I might get a lot more tiny variations, but being able to see clearly what happened is going to be a heck of a lot easier. Ancient documents are the witnesses that we have. And the more witnesses we have, the easier it is to determine what the originals said. When it comes to your New Testament, we have 5,800, last count, 5,800 documents, roughly. The, what this means is that, yes, we have a lot of tiny textual variations. They're called textual variants. And secular scholars will often quote this huge number of Textual variants. We have this many textual variants in the New Testament, and they'll say that in order to try and shake people's faith in the reliability of Scripture. That is incredibly deceptive, and they know it because textual critical scholars know that the more textual variants you have, the more accurate you can actually be with original wording. When biblical scholars argue over what's the original wording in your New Testament, they're arguing over individual words. 
Was it this word or that word? Or they'll argue over whether or not a word was singular or plural. Other scholars that study ancient texts wish they could have those kinds of arguments because they have so few copies of their documents and they are so incomplete, they have to have arguments over paragraphs and pages. I'll just demonstrate this for you just by going back through the documents that I've already mentioned. Caesar's Gallic Wars. Anyone want to guess how many copies of that we have? About 10. Once again, your school textbook is teaching you Roman history from these documents. And I'm not saying it's inaccurate. I'm just saying how much more likely is the reliability and accuracy of your New Testament. Tacitus' histories, we have two, two documents. And they're partial. They're not even complete. We have two partial documents. Thucydides, we got eight, eight copies. Once again, I'll I'll say it in case you forgot it. The New Testament, we have 5,800. Okay, put all of this together, the process, the dates, the numbers, And what emerges is an insane level of reliability. Shades, you have the right words in your Bible. The words that were penned by the original authors. As a matter of fact, anywhere there's a significant question about that, your Bible's going to tell you. You'll have a footnote. It'll say, could be this word. you have reliably the right words. But we still have to ask the question, are these words what they claim to be? God's word. Great, we've got the ones that the authors pinned, but that says nothing about whether or not the claim to be God's word is actually true. So this takes us to question number two. How do we know these words are really God's word? Can we know that that claim is reliable. Once again, the psalmist says yes. Psalm 119, you can look at this later if you want, but you go to verses 151 and 152. I think they're listed on the back of your bulletin uh, as a memory verse for this week. So the psalmist says this, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. How do you know that? How do you know that, psalmist? He's glad we asked. All your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Psalmist says he knows God's word is true. How? From his testimonies. From the word. I know scripture's true. From scripture. That sounds like circular reasoning to me. If you don't know what circular reasoning is, it's uh, reasoning that goes in a circle. In, In other words... Uh, it isn't founded on anything. It's like, it's like trying to hold yourself up in the air. You can't, you can't do that. You can only be held up in the air if you've got something supporting you. You can't do it for yourself. So when we hear the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true, that's like the Bible holding itself up. Holding itself up in the air. Like our modern post-enlightenment mind scream, that's circular reasoning. I told you last week that it's not. In fact, I told you the irony is that our 
post-enlightenment trust in our own reasoning as authoritative, that is actually founded in circular reasoning. How so? I think scholar Christopher Watkin puts it best succinctly. In order to get to that conclusion that my reasoning is authoritative, I have to use my reason to prove that reason is authoritative. Reason's got to hold itself up. Unless there is something outside of it to be grounded in that makes me realize reason can be a reliable tool. Something like a God of reason. A God of reason who has made us in his image. Then my reason actually becomes a trustworthy tool because it's got a foundation other than itself. But I digress. Back to knowing why the Bible is true from the Bible is not circular reasoning. It would be if we didn't see more clearly what the psalmist means in Psalm 119 and verse 152. What does the psalmist mean when he says that he knows God's word is true from God's word? He, he doesn't mean, he doesn't mean he believes scripture is God's word because it says it's God's word. That would be circular reasoning. No, what he means is that he believes scripture is God's word because it shows itself to be God's word. In other words, his argument here has nothing to do with circular reasoning, but everything to do with self-authentication. Self-authentication. Self-authentication, stay with me, self-authentication and circular reasoning are not the same thing. I've told you what circular reasoning is, but self-authentication means that a thing itself is able to give evidence that authenticates it is what it claims to be. So, I'll give you an example. Uh, it would be circular reasoning to say, Jonathan is a human being because he says he's a human being. That's, that's circular reasoning. But it would be self-authentication to say, Jonathan is a human being because he has a real body and cut it open and see there are, no, there are no robot parts. We haven't looked outside of me to prove I'm a real human being because we don't have to. I'm self-authenticating. So is God's word. That's what the psalmist means. He means there are things we can actually see in Scripture that authenticate it really is what it claims to be, God's word. We're just going to look at three. Three things that we can see in Scripture that affirm its reliability as God's word. Number one, prophecy. Prophecy. This is too huge of a topic to cover everything, so let's just limit it to the life of Jesus. Okay? There are over 400 specific Old Testament prophecies that we see very clearly and explicitly fulfilled in the life of Christ. You've got an insert in your bulletin. If this is a topic that interests you, I've given you books that you can read that'll take you way deeper than we're able to go this morning. But on the back, you'll also see this lovely little visual chart of a hundred prophecies fulfilled within the life of Christ. Feel free to look them up yourselves. That's one-fourth of what we're talking about. That's only a hundred out of the 400. Such fulfillment of prophecy 
I don't know any other way to explain it than as a work of God. And sure, some people might try to say, well, Jonathan, Jesus didn't really fulfill all of these prophecies. The New Testament authors, they just made it up. They looked at these Old Testament prophecies and they wrote stories in which Jesus would be seen to fulfill them. I challenge you, I challenge you to find a modern novel or a movie, gets even worse with movies, challenge you to find a modern novel that displays the same kind of fulfillment consistency as we see between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And a modern novel is one story being told by one author. And even then, consistency within a novel is a challenge. It's even more of a challenge within a movie because you've got lots of people making movies, and so it's very hard for them to have a consistent story. There are entire YouTube channels dedicated to making fun of movies' inconsistencies. People make their livelihoods off of this. Yet scripture with over 30 authors written over a period of 1,500 years displays prophetic consistency again and again and again. And that actually takes us to the second thing that affirms scripture's reliability is God's word. Number two, consistency. Consistency. Scripture is self-authenticating, not only because in it we can see divine fulfillment of prophecy, but also because we can see divine consistency. Let me, let me just give you one example the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe, as Christians, in one God who has eternally existed in three equally divine persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you want a short little quip of a way to say it and make sure that you're orthodox, it's eternally Father, eternally Spirit, eternally Son, eternally three, eternally one. Notice that eternally. In other words, God didn't become Trinity. He is. Now, here's the deal. From the very beginning of the Bible, we are taught that there is one God. When is it that we more fully begin to understand the reality that he exists in three equally divine persons? When does that begin to come into focus? Not a trick question. In the New Testament, through Christ, right? In the New Testament, not until the time of Christ do we begin to see more clearly and fully the triune nature of God. Now, does that mean that God became Trinity in the New Testament? No. God has always eternally been triune. So, we should be able to look back at everything the Old Testament says and see consistency. We, we should be able to see evidences that God has always always been three in one. Even though no Old Testament author knew that doctrine in its fullness and shades, this is precisely what we see, and we see it right from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God, God the Father, created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, he said, he spoke by his word. He said, let there be light and there was light. God created through his word. The gospel of John chapter one and verse three tells us that Jesus Christ is the word, the self-revelation of God and that everything was made through him. Right here, first three verses of the Bible, we have 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God creating all things. We see the Trinity in the first three verses. That's insane consistency. And we see it throughout. Like how do you take a monotheistic religion, which in the context of its time in the ancient world was the only monotheistic religion. How do you take a monotheistic religion with at its heartbeat is a rejection of idolatry, an insistence that there is one God and only one God. How do you take their writings over a period of hundreds of years and then take the doctrine of the Trinity and see perfect consistency without contradiction? I don't know any way that happens other than there being one truly divine author behind it all, making sure that everything that's said about him is consistent with who he really is. Shades, do you see, do you see how prophecy and consistency both serve to self-authenticate Scripture's claim to be God's word? Do you, do you see? If, if you do, then I hope you are already beginning to see the third and final thing, the most important thing that affirms Scripture's reliability. Like, here's the deal, Shades. Everything we've done so far can be referred to as what's called evidentialist apologetics. This has been a really hard sermon for me to write and to preach because I don't like evidentialist apologetics. I'm, it's not fun for me. This is not what I like to do at all. I don't think this is how you win people to the faith. I do think it's a way of bolstering Christians' faith and showing them they have a firm foundation. But when it comes to the most explicit thing that affirms for us the reliability of Scripture, I think it all comes down and hinges right here. Like, I think you can argue somebody into a corner on everything we've seen so far, and unless they see this last thing, they will never believe that this is actually God's Word. What's the third the final thing that I think serves to undergird the self-authenticating nature of Scripture, glory. Number three, glory. What is glory? Glory is whatever makes something beautiful, good, great. In other words, glory is something that's seen. If not literally with the eye, then metaphorically with the eye of the heart. Glory is something that you behold. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says that we behold God's glory through the proclamation of the gospel, through the word. Through God's word, we see his glory. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says, just like God said, let there be light into the original darkness of creation, just like he did that, that same God looks into the darkness of our hearts and with his word, he says, let there be light. He does that through us hearing the word of his gospel about Jesus Christ. And he says through that word, let there be light. And we see, we see Jesus. We see the beauty, the goodness, the greatness, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is a real glory and our hearts really see it through the word. And when that happens, scripture is authenticating itself that it really is God's word. It would be 
It would be like me holding up a flashlight in a dark room, Shades, and telling you that, that I can prove to you this thing can, can give you light. How do I prove that? By turning on the flashlight. By shining its light. I don't, I don't prove it to you with something other than the flashlight. The flashlight proves itself. So it is with the word of God. It shines forth a light so that you see God's glory, so that you come to actually know him, hear from him, fall in love with him. And so this book proves itself to be God's word. That's not circular reasoning. It is self-authentication. Has it happened for you? Like, Like when you hear this word, when you hear the glory of God proclaimed in the gospel, You hear how we were all sinners who deserved death, but God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When you hear that good news, do you see, feel, taste its goodness? Do you see the beauty of Jesus through his shed blood? Do you behold his greatness as the resurrected God over all. Do you see his glory shining forth from the word, authenticating its reliability? Shades, do you? Do you see? I will, uh, I will never forget the first time that I saw my daughter Karis uh, see an ice cream truck. Uh, she was only about four years old. We were out walking through our neighborhood in this ice cream truck rounds the corner, blaring at stereotypical music, you know, the entertainer. Everybody knows this song? Okay, fine, whatever. And four-year-old Karis freaks out, like starts screaming, wanting that she's pulling my arm in the absolute opposite direction. She wants to get away, far away from this truck as, as possible. But immediately, I began to proclaim a gospel. Some good news. I told her, I said, Karis, everything's okay. It's an ice cream truck, baby. We, we can get some ice cream. And suddenly, tears of literal fear became cries of joy. She didn't want to get away from the truck anymore. She now pulled me towards it. She wanted to run to it, get in it, live in it. She wanted, wanted the truck. What, what made the difference? She'd seen the truck. She hadn't seen the glory of it. Shades, through word, her eyes were opened to the goodness, the beauty, the greatness, the glory that is ice cream on wheels. (laughs) She wanted nothing more than to embrace it. Shades, just like Kara saw the truck, you may have seen Jesus heard about him, know some stuff about him, but have you seen his glory shining forth through the gospel? Do you know this is God's word, not because it's been proven to you with some facts, but do you know it's God's word because through it you've seen the glory of God? You've you've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is ultimately how we know the reliability of this word. Through it, we come to know the one who wrote like the psalmist. It is from this word that we know it's true because we've seen it. 
Yes, through prophecy. Yes, through consistency, but most supremely through glory. Shades, do you see the reliability of the word? If so, then embrace the one whose glory you see. Embrace the Father through the Son, by the Spirit.